Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to to see the the struggle that Job goes through, not just physically, but even as he is, is interacting with his friends, as he listens to what they have to say, and as he contemplates what they're saying, either being helpful or not helpful to him, as he wrestles with not being understood or, or being put in a box, so to speak. But Lord, may, may we see as we go through our time together here a picture of who you truly are and be drawn in by your magnificence. And be drawn in by the gospel, Lord, that brings us out of our place of insignificance and into your family. What a humble truth that is. And Lord, would you give us now hearts that are willing to learn. So Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, would you give us, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In our home, in the upstairs hallway, we have some caricatures of our children that were done, I can't even remember exactly, like at a Disneyland or some kind of a boardwalk someplace, and they're really cute. They're really funny, and they capture the essence of our children. But caricatures often capture the essential uniqueness of a person and are often distorted because of those unique attributes. Uh, Big ears, large noses, puffy lips, right? Long chins, high foreheads, wavy hair. This is what happens with a caricature. And caricatures usually fall into two categories. Some caricatures are more humorous. Those are the kinds of caricatures you get at Disneyland or the boardwalk in Santa Cruz. And, and they tend to, to focus on bringing out those attributes in a humorous way, but, but for the benefit, really, of being cute and making the person look good. But then there are caricatures that are really drawn more for malice or mockery. They're the kind of caricatures you're going to find in a political cartoon where some of those attributes are not distorted because they like the person, they're distorted because they are trying to say something negative about that person. Now, in both cases, the caricatures are not an accurate reflection of the likeness of the person. They are both distorted in the way they present the person that is being painted or drawn. And so when man decides to paint a picture of God, he usually wants to paint him in a way that seems right to him. And so when man does that, ultimately it is a disaster because it becomes a distorted picture of God. Let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Sometimes man will paint God to be an ogre or a cosmic killjoy. All God wants to do is to rain on your parade. That's one picture. That's one caricature. Others would say God is a distant God, so we paint a picture of him being powerful and mighty, but disinterested with what happens on earth and certainly disinterested in what happens to you. It's another picture of God that is distorted. Most often, I think, in our American Christian culture, it is the portrayal of God as being a benevolent God, kind of like this... The Santa Claus who's up in heaven, and we kind of heard it in the testimonies today, he's that genie that you rub so that he can intervene in your life when you need him, when you want him, when you desire him, but he's always there for your good. Now, is it true that God can at times be an ogre exercising his wrath? Absolutely. Is it true that God is so far removed from us in one sense that he is is distant from us? Yes. That's not the whole truth, is it? Is it true that God is a benevolent God? Yes, it is. But that's not the whole picture 
either. In fact, a number of years ago, Campus Crusade came out with a caricature of their own, a slogan that said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And there were some in the Reformed uh, camp that said, well, we want to change that slogan a little bit. Instead, we're going to say, God hates you and has an awful plan for your life. Now, here's the reality. The second one is no truer than the first. But both of them take one aspect of God and magnify it to such a degree that it's not rounded and it's not complete in its picture of who God is and how he works in the affairs of man. They are imbalanced statements at best. And friends, we can be guilty of the same thing. And as we turn our attention to Job 25 and 26, we're going to see two caricatures of God. One given to us by Bildad, the other one uh, given to us by Job. And they'll help to sh us to shape our understanding of who God is and by implication how God works. And friends, what we need to see in these two chapters is this. When we have a distorted view of God and his ways, then we will also have a distorted view of our own hope. In other words, there's a direct correlation between our view of God and our hope in this world and the next. Or to say it a little differently, an imbalanced portrayal of God and his attributes will lead to an ugly caricature of God and a hopelessness for man. So I said it this way, and I'm going to say it a number of different ways to kind of make sure we're driving it home. A distorted view of God will leave man without hope in this world. What we do not want is to have a distorted view of God. And the reality is, friends, we are always, always, always growing in our understanding of God. But there are some basic realities that we need to, we need to make sure are settled. So to say it positively, hope for the suffering saint, which is who Job is, is found only by having a right and balanced view of God and his ways. And hope for you when you're struggling, and hope for you when you're in crisis, is only going to be present if your view of God is accurate. If it is distorted, you are in difficult situations because you're not going to really have the ability to, to have an awareness of what's going on. So our pursuit of God is not a formula that somehow we plug into, but it's, a, it's more of a focus that we, we adjust ourselves to. A formula will give you a rigid religion. You know, this is what you do, this is who God is, this is how you're to behave, and if you don't, then wham, you're going to get hit. But when we think of our pursuit of God as a focus, it's an ongoing process of, of just kind of uh, twisting the lens a little bit and saying, aha, I see God differently. Now I can see who he is in greater focus. And that happens over time. That happens as you place yourself under his word. And you begin to grasp things about God that just become clearer and clearer. And it's the word of God and the Holy Spirit through the word of God that is giving you that clarity. So let's think a little bit about these two chapters as it relates to structure. Very, very simply, what we have here in each section is a portrayal of God followed by a conclusion set off by the word behold. So that's going to be true in chapter 25. It's also going to be true in chapter 26. Right? So just see that as the structure of what's going on. But we also make, need to make sure that we are reading and studying these two passages in light of the greater context. If we just came to these two texts and we took chapter 25 by itself without looking around, we might come to a conclusion that is wrong. In fact, we might come to the conclusion that Bildad is orthodox and has a, a great relationship with God. But that is not the case. 
Because there is a discussion going on that has been going on that gives some perspective that you understand that what is taking place here is Bildad is, is now continuing his argument, representing his three friends, and Job is continuing to parry their statements and to present a truer picture of God. Okay, so there's context going on here, and we need to understand that Job is responding in chapter 26 to what his friends are saying. All right, with that in mind, let's jump now into chapter 25. And I'm saying this. This whole chapter is basically summarized by this. God is beyond comparison. Now, do you agree with that statement? Absolutely. And so what we're going to find here is that everything that Bill Dad says is actually true. You're going to have a hard time disagreeing with what he says here. All right? And since Job's friends can't really come up with anything new, they haven't been making any headway with Job in any of their arguments, uh, what happens now is Bildad challenges once again the theme that they had already made. He's just going to do it shorter and quicker and with a little bit more passion. And it's that challenge to Job's claim of innocence and his desire to make an appeal before God. And what we need to understand, as I mentioned, is that none of this that he says is wrong. It is true, but hear this, what he says is incomplete. Okay? And Bildad's speech can be, can be broken into two parts. First of all, the supremacy of God. Secondly, the depravity of man. So let's look at the supremacy of God, verses 2 and 3. And let's read it. Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? So Bildad here begins with four characteristics of God that are true and that we joyfully affirm. First of all, God is preeminent. Dominion and fear are with him. He is the one who rules his dominion with awe. That is a, in other words, the awe is, is what he's getting because he is this, this preeminent sovereign God. There is no one who com competes or compares to him. He is the supreme sovereign being who sits above all creation. He's preeminent. Secondly, he is a peacemaking God. This is coming from the courts of heaven. He is in full control of everything that is going on, and he is a God who makes peace. We can say it this way. What might seem chaotic to us down here on earth is well in hand in the courts of heaven. Or to put it differently, even when there is chaos on the earth, there is always stability in heaven. And friends, there's a practical principle that we need to recognize. When we are going through the midst of chaos and we stop and we focus our attention on him and we, we are drawing ourselves boldly to the throne of grace, there is no chaos there. There's only stability and you find God seated on his throne, fully aware, fully in control, and you rest in him. It's beautiful stuff. It's true stuff. So God does not fall off of his throne because something happened on the earth that he was not aware of. No, he causes all things to work together with divine purpose and divine design. So he's preeminent. He's peacemaking. He is also powerful. Is there any number to his armies? Now, Bildad's question there, is there any number to his armies, is answered with a resounding no. They are myriad. They, they're so numerous, you cannot count them. And the forces that are being talked about here are the angelic forces who are always at God's command, ready at a moment's notice to do his will. And so the implication here is that no creature, no event on earth, whether there be wars or things that happen in nature, the hatred of mankind, demons, or even Satan, none of them can thwart God's purposes. With a supremely sovereign God, his will will be accomplished full stop exclamation point. All right? So he's preeminent. He is P 
peacemaking. He is powerful, but he's also pervasive. Is there any number to his armies? The second question now is, upon whom does his light not rise? That's the question. And the answer is obvious. There is no one who escapes the reach of his all-seeing gaze and perfect knowledge. His light penetrates to all persons and places everywhere. So God is pervasive, and his light shines everywhere. He sees everything. So what Bildad is saying, ultimately, is that God is absolutely and supremely sovereign and cannot be resisted. So far, so good for Bildad. What he said is true, and we would affirm it with a strong amen. God is supreme. Secondly, want to notice now the depravity of man. He moves from this picture of God in heaven, powerful uh, and supreme, to now an understanding of man. Because Bildad wants to press home the idea that no mortal person can stand before a holy God and claim to be righteous. And so he says, first of all, Job, man is sinful. Look at verse 4. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who was born of a woman be, be, be pure? Look at how magnificent God is. And if that is true, how can man even think to stand before God? Since God is supremely sovereign, what makes you think that you can be right before God, Job? What makes you think that you can become pure and have the right to stand before him? You can't, he's saying. You're, you're not pure. You're a sinful creature. You're born of a woman. You have no right to approach him. And he would agree with the Apostle Paul who says, for all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. That all people have been weighed by God in the balances and have been found unrighteous. And so Job, that is true for you. Now, friends, these these words are challenging to Job, who had said in the previous chapter, verses 2 through 7, where he's expressed his longing and his desire to enter into the courtroom of heaven and stand before the righteous judge and to make his appeal. And Job says, if I could stand there and if I could plead my case, I know, first of all, that he would listen to me and I know that he would vindicate me. And Bildad is saying, you're not even going to have a chance to stand before him. Because you're sinful. You're a sinful man. You have no right to do that. And you know what? He's right. Job has no right to enter the courts of heaven and make his appeal. And so he's saying... Job, you're nuts. Your desire to enter God's presence is a pipe dream because you are a sinful creature. You're wasting your time. You're sinful. God is holy. Who do you think you are to talk that way? But not only does he say you're sinful, but he also says you're insignificant, and he uses, I think, this idea, you're small. Look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, even the moon is not bright. And the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm. So now Bildad gives a contrast between God and the moon and the stars. In order to show how insignificant man is, and ultimately to show Job how insignificant Job is. God is brighter and purer than both the moon and the stars. And just think about this. When you look up into the heavens on a clear night and see the stars shining in all their majesty, and I'm sure that you've done that, and when you have done that, you have been in awe of the majesty of God, right? And that's one of the things. The heavens declare the glory of God, and you look up at the stars, and you're just like in awe. He's saying, know that they are a dim reflection of who God is. And when you look up into the sky and see the moon shining brightly, I remember uh, you know, a couple of nights, I live up on the hill in Hayward, up beyond the, uh, the, the university there, and so you're driving up the hill on a full moon night, and the moon can be right there. I mean, it's, it's huge. 
And everything around it is dark, but this light of the full moon is just beaming. It's amazing. It's powerful. And yet, it is a dim reflection of the brightness and the holiness of God. That's what Bildad is saying. He's saying, in essence, God is pure brightness. The moon and the stars are a dim reflection of him. And man is nothing in comparison to either the moon or the stars. He's a maggot. He's a worm. He's wiggling his way through life. He is not compared to the moon and the stars. And to be sure, man is nothing in comparison to God. So here, then, is the caricature that Bildad presents in his argument, because of God's pure, bright supremacy, man is guilty and condemned and therefore has no right to approach God and make an appeal. Job, you are a maggot and a worm in comparison to God. And as a result, there is an infinite chasm that separates the supremacy of God and the depravity of man. You know, the story is often told of, of a fly that comes into a palace and lands on a masterpiece painting, a huge one on the wall. And it's kind of crawling in some of the bits and pieces of the masterpiece. It's original. Some are smooth and some are kind of chunky and have ridges and that kind of stuff. And the fly does not comprehend the backdrop of what it is walking on. It doesn't have the perspective. It doesn't have the knowledge. It doesn't have the awareness. And what Bill Dad is saying is this. Job, there is a backdrop of the fact that God is mighty and he's great and he's powerful. But understand, you are just a worm. You are nothing in comparison to him. This, in essence, is the message that Bildad has for Job, that God is so supremely sovereign and powerful that men, that mere man, a maggot and a worm, has no right to a relationship with God or any personal or practical awareness of his ways. God is infinite. Man is finite. There it is. But friends, this is one form of man-made religion that sees God as supreme and man is so small and significant, so he must live a life to somehow please that sovereign ruler. If he's successful, he will be blessed. If he's unsuccessful, he will be punished. So this is a caricature of God's sovereignty and man's depravity, which we both agree with. But it's a picture of those two things without the gospel. Without the hope of a justified sinner able to make an appeal to God or to come into his presence. So that's why I'm saying what Bildad presents here is true. But it is incomplete. And just because someone says, well, I believe in God. That's not sufficient. Even the demons believe in God, but they have not embraced him. They have not bowed the knee to him. It's one thing to have a right view of God, but it's another thing to be in relationship with him. And that is the predicament that Bildad is presenting here. And that is bondage, friends, to, to create a system where God is so mighty and you are so insignificant and somehow you have to do all these things to prove somehow that you're worthy. It's bondage, friends. So Job responds now. And not only is God beyond comparison, what Job brings in now to round things off and to help out his argument is to say that God is beyond comprehension. The friends have spoken and they have run out of new ideas. What Bildad said about God's sovereignty and man's depravity was true, but Job is some counsel for his friends in the form of a rebuke, a revelation, and then a conclusion. Let's begin now with the rebuke. And ultimately, he's saying to his friends here, in our time together, you have missed the mark with me. Again, let's pick it up, chapter 26, verses 2 through 4. 
And this is, you got to read it with a little bit of sarcasm here, okay? How you have helped him who has no power. Well, who's the one who has no power? Job. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words? With whose breath has come out from you? So he's saying, you say you have come to comfort and counsel me in my suffering and distress when you saw me suffering with no power and no strength and no wisdom for what I was going through. Have you, have you actually helped anyone? He says, first of all, you're full of empty words. There's no power in your words. There's no strength in your counsel. There's no wisdom in your arguments. In other words, rather than helping Job when he was down, they had been kicking him over and over and over again. There'd been no real help from his friends. There'd been no hope for salvation from them. There was no helpful counsel, ultimately. So not only are they full of empty words, but they're also full of misguided words. I just think through what he's saying here in verse 4. With whose help have you uttered these words? He's saying, you have been the agent of someone else's words. Someone else's breath has been put into your mouths. And it's not the breath of God. And if it's not the breath of God, there's only one other person that it can be. It is the breath of Satan who is speaking unwittingly through you. And that's what he's accusing his friends of. They have not been representing God. And we know that to be true because at the end of the book, that's what God says. But they have been promoting a system that is rooted in the breath of Satan. It's quite the rebuke, isn't it? And so now he moves on to Revelation. And what he does here is he shows how magnificent God is. And when you compare Bildad's description of God to Job's description of God, Bildad is right, but very simplistic. God who rules with awe, makes peace, oversees the mass armies, and is over his creation. But now, Job is also right, but he's far more majestic in what he says. A God whose sovereign power is over the realm of the dead, the heavens, the earth, and the waters. So first of all, let's just kind of look at what he says here. God is sovereign under the water, in the realm of of the dead. Look at verses 5 and 6. The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon is, has no covering. So there are these three different names for the place of the departed. The waters, Sheol, and Abaddon, which is um, a word that means destruction. And notice that the words that describe their vulnerability before God, the dead tremble, Sheol is naked. Abaddon is, has no covering. In other words, there is no protection from the realm of the dead, from God's ever-watching gaze. God sees it all. And he's aware of those who are dead. There is a crescendo from the dead to Sheol to Abaddon. But the point here is this, that, that dead people cannot escape the sovereignty of God. They are naked before God and cannot hide from his all-seeing eye. So if God sees what's going on in the world of the dead, then surely he knows what is happening in the world of the living. So God is sovereign under the water. Secondly, God is sovereign above the earth, the heavens, verses 7 through 9. 
He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads it over his cloud. So now Job turns his gaze to the heavens that are above the earth. God has stretched out the heavens like a tent on a pole. The northern skies being the uppermost, highest point in the universe in this imagery here. And Job brings in Genesis 1 language, the earth being without form and void. And then the earth is upheld by God's command in outer space, resting on nothing. Now, if you read this text from a scientific perspective, there are things in this text that have been, have been recorded in God's word right, for centuries that if man had paid attention to, he would realize are accurate and describe exactly what the earth is. There are waters on the earth, but there are also waters in the heavens, he's saying. Verse 8. They are clouds that hold water. But God has ordered it so that these clouds, although heavy with water, do not split open and give a cloudburst. I mean, just imagine this. You go out and you look at the sea, and it's amazing, but there's water in the heavens. He said, oh, there's a scientific reason for that. Yeah, but there's also a divine reason for that. That God would store up water in the heavens and then break clouds open to shower land. It's amazing. If I told you, hey, you know, I want you to hold up gallons and gallons of water in the sky, would you be able to do it? Absolutely not. But God does. And he's created the world in such a way that he has total control over it. Not only that, with these very same clouds, God covers the moon in all its brightness so that man cannot see it, or he only sees it dimly. Friends, Job is taking us on a little journey, isn't he, from beneath the waters, the realm of the dead, to right above the waters in the heavens or the earth, then to the line that we call the horizon, the horizon here. This is the next verse, verse 10. He's a, he has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters. Just get the picture there. When we go look at the horizon, we typically see somewhat of a strange straight line, but, but he describes it as a circle on the face of the waters. There is, if you look very, very carefully, a slow little circle there. It's just accurate. At the boundary between light and darkness. So it is on the horizon that the sun rises and sets. The boundary there between light and darkness, day and night, even land and sea. And there's something most beautiful about a sunset, isn't there? All the colors, all, how, how, the, how the, kind of the atmosphere around changes, all of this, the sun and the natural backdrop of God's masterpiece painting, that's his creation. And sometimes the emphasis is on the sun, but here the emphasis is on the horizon that separates the light from darkness. God is sovereign over that. Fourth, God is sovereign in the earth. The picture in the last two descriptions is of order, stretching, hanging, binding, covering, spreading. This is our sovereign God at work upholding his creation. But now there is a surprise because we are confronted with his creation trembling at his rebuke. There is order and then there's trembling. How can that be? Verse 11, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. The pillars of heaven is a poetic way to describe the mountains that rest on the earth but seem to hold up the heavens. And when God speaks to rebuke them, they tremble. Job's description here shakes the core of his friend's theological system that is neat and tidy and clings to order, but has no room for the trembling of his creation at God's rebuke. And friends, sometimes God rebukes. And sometimes there is trembling in his creation that he is fully in control of. And when you just look at creation to get a picture of who God is, you can imagine him to be a God of power and order, but still fall woefully short. He is more than that. He is a supreme, sovereign God who can and does shake the order of his creation 
when he so chooses. And finally here, he is sovereign over other gods. Verse 12 and 13, by his power he stilled the sea, by his understanding he shattered Rahab, by his wind the heavens were made fair, by his hand the fleeting, uh, he pierced the fleeting serpent. So these two verses, you might read them and be a little bit confused as to what's actually been going on. You have the sea, you have Rahab, the fleeting servant. What is all this about? Christopher Ash here is helpful, and he says, these verses speak in storybook language uh, that would be recognized all over the ancient Near East of the conquest and the subjugation of supernatural evil. In that context, in that culture, the sea was a place of unpredictability and chaos, and I think still is today. Rahab is not the Rahab of, you know, the spies and all that kind of stuff. Rahab is the storybook name for a gigantic sea monster or sea serpent that lives in the sea and embodies all the anti-God forces of evil in the universe. So think of like a, a vicious Loch Ness monster. Okay? And we meet the same creature by a different name in Isaiah 27 and verse 1. Listen to what it says there. In that day, the Lord with his hand and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeting serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So, so Job is pulling in language to describe those who oppose God. Those fictitious, uh, symbolic um, evils who are against God. He is completely sovereign over them. And notice what happens here, the language that flows out of this text. Four things were told here about his sovereignty. He stills the sea. He shatters Rahab. He pierces the fleeting serpent. And he clears out the storm by his word to make the weather fair. God is sovereign, friend. He is mighty. He is majestic. Now, Job has not given his punchline yet. That is yet to come. But God is sovereign below the waters, above the earth, on the horizon, in the earth, and against all other gods. And the point being is that God is magnificently sovereign over all. And now comes the word, Behold. Here's the conclusion. We have just gone on a journey with Job, looking at the many ways that God is sovereign in his creation. The images he uses, the staggering images, they're, so, they're beautiful and they're, they're magnificent. But let's bring this down to a place where, where we live right now. And let's at least begin to say that, that creation declares and reveals the magnificence of God. Let me throw that out to you. Maybe to go home today and to do some things, to, to remind you of that. Take time to stop and look at a leaf sometime. A leaf that is on a tree in your yard or at the local park. I mean, just pause. I know you go by it all the time, right? But just pause and see how it is formed. See its shape. See its color. See its texture. Examine the veining in that leaf and imagine how the nutrients come from the root system up through the trunk of the tree and through the branches and ultimately find their place in the leaf. And just pause and be in awe and wonder at God's creation of a leaf. Or how about a spider? In particular, a spider's web. There was a spider crawling across here this morning. But a spider's web, even better than a spider's web, watching a spider create his web. Have you ever done that before? And you have to ask yourself some questions, don't you? How can such a small spider produce so much web matter? I mean, really, you, you take the mass of the web and compare it to the size of the spider, it doesn't make any sense. How can it hang just kind of on that web matter for so long? How can it be sustained by it? How can it see the pattern that it's making? How does the spider know to make that web in that place? 
These are all marvels of nature. Here in California, in particular in the Bay Area, consider the fog rolling in on a summer's day over the peninsula grabbing hold of San Francisco. How can we move from such blistering heat to a city covered by fog in just a short amount of time? It's like the fog is alive, clawing its way over, isn't it? Just marvels of nature. Consider the smell of rain after a torrential rainstorm. You don't get it so much here in the Bay. You might get it if you go up to the mountains. When I lived in, in Michigan in the Midwest, we would have summer thunderstorms, and they were wonderful. And we had this big, huge front porch. And when it rained, you know what we did? We didn't hide ourselves in the house. We went out on the porch. And you hear it, and you see it. And then when it stops, there's a freshness in the air. And there's the beauty of the sound of the dripping water from the leaves. And it's, it's, like, it's like God's creation is saying, ah, ah. Something beautiful about that. Consider the freedom of a bird in flight. It's a number of birds that fly around our yard. Way up high is the hawk that is just soaring its way back and forth, looking for its food. It's amazing. It's a beautiful creature. And then we have some blue jays, and they just kind of like flap quickly here, flap quickly there, from tree to tree to tree to tree. And then we have the hummingbirds. I mean, who would have created a hummingbird? I mean, just, it doesn't seem logical, does it? Just how fast they move and how fast their wings flutter. But they're incredibly beautiful creatures, and yet how they fly is so different. And yet they are marvels of God's creation. I could go on and on looking at marvels of God's creation. It's truly amazing. It's beautiful. It's majestic. But friends, hear this. Knowing a few, backs, a few facts about the creation of God is not the same as knowing truths about the God of creation. Let me say that again. Knowing the facts about the creation of God is not the same as knowing the truths about the God of creation. Creation reveals that God exists and that he's mighty and that he's powerful, but it is insufficient. It's insufficient to give us a specific awareness of who God is and what he has done. And we get there by virtue of God's special revelation, his breathed-out word. And through that breathed-out word, we begin to understand who God is, and we also begin to understand who God is by virtue of the gospel. And so Bildad may have a right view of God, but it's a limited view, and it's a misapplied view of God, whereas Job now is saying, listen, here is the magnificence of God I want you to see it, I want you to look at it, and I want you to be in awe of it. But, verse 14, there's something else I want you to note. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. In other words, we've only just scratched the surface. What you know about God is so small in comparison to who he really is. He goes on, and how small a whisper do we hear of him? In other words, God in creation has revealed himself, but what he's revealed, even though it is magnificent, is simply but a whisper. The more we learn about God, the more we discover how much more there is to know of him. And so what Job is saying to his friends is this. You think you know God? You know nothing about God. You present your view of God, but that is a distorted view of God because you have no room beyond what you can see, beyond your understanding of his general kind of rule over mankind. All you have is a religious system with a distorted and incomplete caricature of God. And it never grows, 
It never adjusts to God's revelation of himself, and you're stuck in your system. You're like that old life alert commercial where the old lady says, I followed and I can't get up. And Job's friends have fallen by way of their distorted system and understanding of God. And as a result, Job is saying to Bildad, Bildad, you have fallen and you can't get up. You can't get up. Now hear this. If God is beyond comparison and I'm a worm, if God is beyond comprehension and what I know is only a whisper, then there is only one place to turn to, and it is to God. I can only make an appeal to him, Job is saying, even in my limited circumstance and understanding. Where else am I supposed to go? But Job has already revealed to his friends what he knows to be true, even in his limited understanding, that he has a mediator, that he has an advocate in heaven, that he has a redeemer. These are expressions, these are titles, these are identifications that Job appeals to through his argument with his friends. This is what he says he knows. So friends, I want to present to you what I'm calling worm theology. What we have here, first of all, is God whispering to the worm. It's a powerful reminder of hope because the sovereign God of the universe kindly stoops down to whisper to the worm of mankind. That's a powerful image, isn't it? Now what's interesting, friends, is that even in the song that we sang earlier, where Isaac Watts identifies man as a worm, there are people that have actually been offended at that hymn and wanted to change the worm language. And yet that is exactly what Job uses here by virtue of what Bildad says. He's a worm. God whispers to the worm. God rescues the worm. He rescues worms, he rescues maggots, fleas, and spiders. That's right. Uh-oh is right. But God rescues them. That, that worm that is left out after a rain is going to die. Either it's going to be eaten or it's going to dry up. And you are like that worm, and God cares enough to rescue you. You see, on one level, we are nothing in comparison to God, but on another level, God has placed in us his image and has set us apart from all his creation. But even as image bearers, we are doomed to the abode of the dead to be, placed in, to be put in a place called hell, so we need a mediator, we need an advocate, we need a redeemer. And this majestic, sovereign, omnipotent God stoops down and rescues us and he breathes new life into us. He regenerates us, he welcomes us into his family. And so this morning we sang that very familiar song by Isaac Watts. Let me read the first stanza. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Now, friends, God whispers to the worm, and I'm so thankful that he does. God rescues the worm, and I'm so thankful that he has. And so what that means for us is that we need to embrace our wormness. That would be great for a t-shirt. This is who we are. We are worms. We are insignificant, it's true. God is magnificent, that is true. But there is an advocate, there's a mediator, there's a redeemer, and his name is Jesus. 
We have been proclaiming him throughout this service by virtue of song, by virtue of testimony, now in the word. The reason that we can bridge this huge gap is not because of anything that we have done, but it's because of what he has done. We cannot stand before God in our unrighteousness and expect to be heard. But we who are God's children don't stand before God in that manner. We, we are naked, we're poor, we're blind, we're miserable. But now because of Christ, we stand before God clothed in pure, righteous robes that are Christ's. We stand before him holy, not because of anything that we have done, but only because of what Christ did for us on the cross. You may know the name William Carey, a missionary to India. What's interesting is that he died exactly 185 years ago, June 9th, 1834. And this is the epitaph he had written on his gravestone. William Carey, born August 17th, 1761, died June 9th, 1834, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. He embraced his wormness and placed himself in the arms of his sovereign God. Friends, it is no shame to be called a worm in comparison to God. The real question for us this morning is this. Does this worm comprehend the kindness of God to reach down undeservingly and rescue this worm? In light of what Job is saying, it's an amazing thing that God seeks us out and draws us into his family, that he would reach down and breathe new life into our darkened souls, that he would grant us forgiveness and life everlasting, that he would invite us into his family and call us sons and daughters, that he would entrust us with his word, his precious gospel, that he would care even about the clothes on our back, the food in our stomach, the roof over our heads. Friends, like Job, we're all worms and maggots in the grip of the sovereign creator God of the universe. Will we submit ourselves to his ways? Will we worship him as he is truly revealed in the pages of his word? And will we see him in his wonder and majesty? Job wanted to challenge his friend. See who God really is. With that, I challenge you. Lord, help us today. We are worms. You are sovereign. And there's nothing that we could do to bridge that gap except for what you have done in sending your son, Jesus Christ. To comprehend that rescue is overwhelming. But Lord, we celebrate it. We worship you because of it. And Lord, I just pray for those that may be here today who, who have been struggling with a relationship with you, who might believe that you exist, or be in awe of your majesty, but have not connected the dots of their wormness and the fact that Christ died to bring reconciliation so that they would move from being a worm to being called son or daughter in the family of God. Help us, Lord, to embrace these realities for your glory. In your name, amen.